0: Would you turn back in your Bibles again to the book of Haggai? Probably every person in this auditorium at some point in his or her life has needed a special word of encouragement. And the need for that encouragement comes for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes it's because we're going through physical trials and physical difficulties. Sometimes we need a word of encouragement simply because circumstances around us have kind of come unglued and it seems as if the, the, the world around us and the world in which we're moving is is just coming undone. And there's there it seems to be out of control. Sometimes there are tests that come into our lives that cause us to wonder if we will ever be able to pass through them and come out on the other side. And then there are times as well when perhaps uh, we're experiencing the chastening hand of God because of some sin in our life or something of that nature. And there are all kinds of varieties as to why we need a word of encouragement. And here is the great thing, or not the great thing, but one of the great privileges that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. At just the right moment, God sends the encouragement that we need. When I look back in the history as it's recorded in God's Word, Adam had just fallen into sin, and he had disobeyed what God had commanded, and as a result of that, not only is he now going to have death within him, but he will be in the process of dying the rest of his days, and then there is also a spiritual death that comes along with that, and this consequence is passed upon all of his descendants, which includes us. And that would be a very, very discouraging time. But at that moment, the Lord came to Adam with words of encouragement. And he said, if I may paraphrase, even though this punishment is coming down upon you, I want you to know that through your seed, there is going to be a Savior. There is going to be one who will crush the head of the enemy, who is Satan himself. And Adam could live out his days with this knowledge that God is somehow going to make things right through the coming of a Savior. When I look at a man by the name of Job, who from all perspectives is experiencing every imaginable difficulty and trial and hardship that you could possibly go through. He was a man of great wealth, and all of that wealth was taken away. He was a man who had, apparently, a very nice family. And apart from his wife, his family is taken away. And he's a man who was undoubtedly experiencing some physical vitality and strength that God took away. And he goes through life wondering what is happening and these counselors come to him and they they try to give him encouragement that turns out to be more of a curse than anything else until the the Lord speaks to him. And the Lord does call to his mind the realization that when God does something it will be right. And though he as man had lost everything that he thought was dear on the earth, he still had a heavenly father who had not failed, who had not lost strength, who had not lost sight of him. And in the end result, the Lord declares and then fulfills a double blessing that comes back to Job. And he doubles his flocks, he doubles his wealth. And it's interesting to me that he gives him the same number of children, which essentially is a doubling of the children because his other children are with the Lord. So he has twice as many now. I look at a man by the name of Abraham who is set apart by God to be a special vessel that God is going to use to help satisfy the promise that God had given to Adam. And he calls Abraham out of his homeland and brings him into a land that he never possesses any part of it. None of it becomes his. But God gives him these words of encouragement. Abraham, from your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it was through Abraham and his descendants that the person of Jesus Christ came. But in addition to that, I am giving you, God says to Abraham, this land into which I have led you, and your descendants will own this land, and one day it will be the heritage of all of believing Israel. And God gives him great encouragement in the midst of having left everything behind. There are words of encouragement that God brings all along the way, and when we come to the book of Haggai, we find the same thing happening once again. If you remember, the children of Israel, the remnant of the the Israelites that were captive under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, who... Later, his descendants lost that throne, lost that kingdom to the Medes and the Persians, and Cyrus the Mede made a declaration that a remnant of the people who had been taken captive would be allowed to return to the land of Israel, and they there could reestablish the city of Jerusalem and the temple. For 16 years after they had returned... Apart from the laying of the foundation of the temple, almost nothing had been done. And they had been disobedient because God brought them back to that area for the purpose of reestablishing a place of worship, a place where God would manifest his presence, a place where the rest of the Israelites could come in order to worship the true and the living God. And for 16 years, they had set that aside. And the Lord tells us, and as we looked last week, and let me just remind you about this, if you go back into that first chapter, you see what kind of situations had developed. The cause for this whole situation, they, they had been facing opposition. They were disappointed. In addition to that, they were expressing a sense of ingratitude. They, they really were not thankful for what the Lord had given to them. They, procrastinated in that they said, well, we'll eventually get to the Lord's work, but just not right now. And then what they did was they replaced the work that they were supposed to be doing for the Lord with work that brought them their own personal comfort. As a result, a curse came down on them. And the Lord tells us that that curse was leanness. Not only in the things that they harvested, but even a lack of fulfillment within their own souls and within their own spirits. And they would believe that their crops were going to yield something, and they would yield much less, and they would drink, but they could not be satisfied in their thirst. And, and this curse had come down, and then God gave them the solution, the cure. And the cure was, take a good look inside yourself. Take the time to examine not only who you are, but the way you are responding to me. And then obey me and fear me. The wonderful thing is this. The children of Israel did just that. They looked inside themselves. They obeyed what God said from that point, And they feared him with a reverence and with an awe. Having made that turn, having we would use the phrase, they repented. They turned 180 degrees and now they're ready to start moving the direction that the Lord wants them to go. And He, at this point in time, sends them three different messages. Those three messages are recorded for us in Haggai chapter 2 and the first message is recorded in the first nine verses and it's a wonderful message of encouragement. You know, I think we will see in this that the words of encouragement that God gave to the people of Israel at this point in their history are words of encouragement that He would give us as well. If you go back to this, and earlier Pastor Luke had read this portion to you, But I would like you to just draw your attention to to a particular verse down here in verse 4 that I believe gives us the overview of the the first sermon that Haggai is going to preach and that he's going to deliver to the Israelites. It says, Yet now be strong. Here come the words of encouragement. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Here's the first part of the words of encouragement. God promises His presence with His people. When He promises that presence... Everything else begins to flow out of that. And we begin to see the flow of that as we look at some other verses that were going on in this. He is telling them... I'm not only promising you that I will be with you, but here's the the extent of that promise. This is as binding upon myself as the promise that I made to your forefathers when they were in the land of Egypt and I brought them out of that land. Look at verse 5. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. One of the blessings of this promise that God gave to the Israelites is reiterated to us in the book of Hebrews. Now, you don't have to turn there if you choose not to, but in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, this promise is quoted within the context of a message that God is giving to His people for every age. And here's what He says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If the entire thought of what God was saying to the Israelites came to a close at this point, it would have been enough. And if that's what you and I have to hang on to, the knowledge of God's presence with us, That is enough. Do you understand that God makes a promise to every born-again believer in Jesus Christ? You're mine. I am never going to leave you. I will never forsake you. You might say, well, there are times I don't feel like that's the case. I feel like God is far away from me. Josh, what's the phrase? Deal with it? Your feelings are not the issue. God's Word is the issue. My feelings go up and down with all kinds of circumstances that come into my life. And I can feel this way about something, but the reality is this way. And when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, here's the reality. Even if you don't feel He's near you, even if you feel that He is far, far away, He is still there. Because he said he would be there. And that's what he told these Israelites. And so, with this understanding, they begin to understand some other things that are going to accompany this. The first thing they understand is that with his presence with them, he is able to take little and make it much. You say, now how in the world do you know that? Well, let's go back to this passage once again. Look with me, if you will, please, back at... um Verse 3 of this chapter. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Alright, well what's, what's the circumstance here? If we want to understand the the, the the framework of what's going on here, you have to go back to where this historic event is recorded for us in the book of Ezra. So will you join me and do that? Keep your finger here in Haggai, but turn back to Ezra, the third chapter. Because we have a record here of what is going on with the Israelites in this process of events. In Ezra chapter 3, go down here to verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 10. Verse 10. It says, now Now here, here's the background. Children of Israel have left the area of what would be present day Iraq. Uh, they, they were now moving out of that kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. They've made their way back to where Israel had formerly been, or pardon me, where Jerusalem had formerly been prior to its destruction and its devastation. And now they've returned to this area and they're laying the foundation for the new temple. And as you get uh, the record of this in verse 10, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with the cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsive, responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel." Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Good news, right? Mm, To some. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept. Wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Well, you got this crowd yelling. It's kind of like watching a football game. Do you ever watch football games? Okay, some of the ladies are shaking their heads no. Um, That's okay. Um, Let's see, what could I liken this to for the ladies? Um, A quilting party (laughs) that's made up of 96,000 people. And you have one crowd yelling for their team because it's doing well and you have another crowd yelling to try to keep that team from doing well. Or this team yelling for blue patches and this team yelling for red patches. just want you all to be able to identify with this, okay? You all all have the idea. That mixture of response is different depending on your point of view. When the foundation of the temple was laid the point of view of the people who had been the returning remnant to Jerusalem was very different. The young people who had never experienced the worship at the temple. They had never come when the sacrifices were offered to God. They had never been part of the celebrations that revolved around God's presence and His working within the people of Israel. They had not seen the grandeur of this incredible edifice that Solomon built after his father David had laid aside an incredible amount of wealth so that this could be built in such a way that it would be one of the most fantastic, beautiful structures the world had ever seen. They are just happy to see the foundation of the temple laid. But the older people, those who were over 70 years of age, who had seen the previous temple, they're looking at the foundation, and they begin to weep. And they say, this house will never be what it was. Haggai captures that thought. Go back again to the book of Haggai. Look at verse 3 once again. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? What kind of encouragement is this? How is the Lord going to take this and bring glory to Himself? We saw the other temple. The other temple was so much nicer. It was, there's just no way this is going to to compare to what we had before. Until God speaks again. Drop down to verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen, verse 8. Let me just kind of read between the lines for you here. You thought David was able to accumulate the materials to make a grand temple. Let me tell you something, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine says the Lord of hosts in other words if you thought the other was a glorious temple you wait till you see what I do with this temple verse 10 pardon me verse 9 the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Do you know what the Lord just told them? Little is much when I'm in it. Little is much when I'm in it. this doesn't look all that great. And the day will come when it will be completed and Zerubbabel's temple will be done. And from a human point of view, it's not going to look all that incredible. In fact, there's someone coming later down the road by the name of Herod who is going to make some changes on this temple. It's going to be like you buying a house that's not exactly the way you want it, but you now have chance, and you, you might have the means by which you can fix it up and make it just the way you want. And Herod's going to step in, and he's going to have a little more um, wealth behind him. The Romans are, are back in the sky, and, and he is going to make this temple even grander than it will be under Zerubbabel. But I want to tell you something. Those aren't the issues. I own the gold. I own the silver. If that's what really made the difference, we could make this the most beautiful structure the world has ever seen. But that's not what makes it great. It's when I manifest my presence, that's going to be the greatness of this temple. And when you see that, you will think that Solomon's temple was nothing. You know what God is telling us here? He is giving us a continuation. A uh, Maybe it would be better to use this terminology. A continuum of events that will lead to the establishment of the temple where the Savior will reign over this earth for a thousand years during the millennium. He is going to be Present in the temple where the world will come before that temple and they will bow and they will worship, and the glory of that temple will be greater than any temple that human hands can make. Now, do you know where that temple is right now? It's in the plan of God. I'm speaking... We are His temple right now. But there is the physical temple that is going to be built and it is in the plan of God. And there's something in the way right now. It's called the Mosque of Omar. The Dome of the Rock. It's going to go. It's going to go. And in spite of all of the efforts of the Islamic world to foist their influence and their control over the rest of the world, they will not succeed. They can cause a lot of trouble. They can end a lot of lives. They can bring about a great deal of suffering. But I want to tell you something. They are not going to win because God's temple is going to be established. How do we know? Because little is much when God is in it and he promised this is the way it's going to be. Have we ever seen God do something like this before? Where little turned out to be much? Sure. Take take a guy by the name of Elijah. He had prayed and it did not rain. You, you remember he was having a conflict with Ahab, a very godless king. And in that conflict that Elijah and Ahab were having, Elijah made the declaration, "...it will not rain on the land until I pray for that rain to come." Period of three years, it did not rain. And the land is suffering, and it's suffering because of the sinfulness of the Israelites. But there is a woman in the in, in the area of Zarephath to whom God sends Elijah because God had set Elijah apart at this stream that dried up, and he no longer could could drink anything. And do you remember that the Lord had the birds? Bring the ravens bringing the food to him. So he was able to survive through this period of time. But now something terrible has happened. The spring has dried up. The birds aren't bringing the food anymore. And the Lord says to Elijah, I want you to go to this widow, a widow lady in the, the city of Zarephath, and I want you to ask her to give you a drink and give, give you some bread. And so he does that, and he comes to the city, and as he approaches it, he sees this widow that he is to address, and he says to her, "Um, please give me water to drink, and give me bread. And here's the thing, she did it, and you might say, well... Boy, I just don't get it. But but here's something that we often forget. If you go back and read that event as it took place, we are told that the Lord told her to do what she did. And so it wasn't just Elijah coming in and making the declaration, but the Lord had told her, there's a guy coming and I want you to do what he asks you to do. So she understands this. And she says, well, she says, here's water. She says, but all I have is a handful of flour and a little oil. And I was gathering sticks to build the last fire. I was going to make some bread for myself and my son, and then we were going to die. And Elijah says, no, you give me first some bread. Well, the Lord had told her to do that, so she did. She made the bread. She gave it to Elijah. And you understand that for the rest of that three-year period where others are dying one after another, God took that little bit and he supplied their needs for the whole rest of the drought. Little was much because God was in it. And Hezekiah makes an appeal to the understanding that this is the kind of God that they were worshiping fellow by the name of Gideon has to go to war against the, um, the Moab- Moabites or Edomites or the Parasites, um, one of the Ites, I, uh, now I'm forgetting who it is, I think it was the Moabites or Midianites, Midianites, I knew it was an M, Midianites and, and Amalekites. Now, if you know anything about the Midianites, the Bible tells us that they covered the land like locusts. And they were going to swarm into the land of Israel. But God called a man who is hiding at the threshing floor and identifies him as as a great military man, a great conqueror, a great fighter. And he says to him, I'm going to have you lead my, my army and... 32,000 Israelites gather. And you'd look at that and you'd say, well, that's not really all that big an army when you consider that the Midianites and the Amalekites, are, they are just covering the land. And then the Lord says to Gideon, you have too many. <laughs> and if any of you are afraid, go home. 22,000 of them go home. Now he's got 10,000. <laughs> Well, maybe if we plan this right, we can beat them with 10,000. We're going to have to ambush them, and we're going to have to use every possible means at our disposal. And the Lord says, No. You have too many. I want you to go down to the river. And you remember how he said, Depending on the way the people would drink out of the water, uh, I want you to take this group, and those that drink this way, that's going to be your army. And there's 300 of them. And the Lord says, now. He says, now it's a fair fight. (laughs) I want your 300 to go down, and I want you to take on these Midianites and the Amalekites. And the Bible says they did. And they conquered, not in the traditional way we would think, but instead they conquered in a way that demonstrated that little is much when God is in it. And the Midianites and the Amalekites were so confused as the battle began that they turned their swords on each other and they killed themselves. And some began to flee and then Gideon was able to chase them and other Israelites gathered in the chase and they won. Why? Why? Because God has the ability to take very, very little and make it much. Do you understand what that means to us? God can take, and I'm not speaking physically, but God can take small people. And He can do great works through them. I hear people say this, well, I would love to serve the Lord, but who am I? I don't have much of an education. Um, I'm really not outgoing. i have not really trained formally. How could God use me? Would you remember that little is much when God is in it? Do you know what God wants from small people? Use me, Lord. Use me. Sadly, some people are so discouraged by their own sense of incapability that they never come to the place where they say, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. What can you do through me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Lord, what can you do through me? And the Lord says, I can do whatever I want through you. I've already shown you. I showed you through Elijah. I showed you through Gideon. I can do whatever I want. God uses little ministries. Just to get real specific, why do we have such a hard time finding workers for the nursery? Well, it's not that big a deal. Good grief. Let let other people take care of that. Do you understand how big a deal that is in God's sight? That you would be willing to step forward and say... I am going to help out in the nursery because there are people, I I know I need this as well, but there are other people who perhaps need it more, to hear what God has to say to them today. And so I'm going to take care of the little ones so they can go in and not worry about what's happening with the children, and they can hear a message from the Lord. Why is it that we have so much trouble finding uh, ushers? (laughs) Did you know we're having trouble finding ushers? And here's what's going to happen. We're, we're going to, Now, this is a traditional thing. I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. This is a traditional thing. We always have men for ushers. Is there any biblical mandate that says it has to be men? No. Are you going to be offended if you see women as ushers? I hear some saying yes. There's no need to be offended, but because traditionally we have always had men as ushers, It's going to be really nasty looking if we have a woman be an usher. Does God prohibit that? No. And so, you know what? If we don't have men who are willing to do it, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have ladies do it. And yet, preach it, brother. (laughs) Listen, this is is just a tiny little thing, but yet it's so important... can God use an usher's ministry in a very special way? Absolutely. You say, but that that's just such a little thing. You stand there, you hand out things, you shake hands. You may be the reason a person says, there is something about that individual that showed me that they genuinely cared about me when I walked into that auditorium. And that's the kind of place I want to be. And then they begin to find out that there's a whole lot more with the fellowship and the blessings and all of these other things. Little is much when God is in it. Um, I have little gifts. All of you have spiritual gifts if you know Christ as your Savior. How are you using them? Well, right now I'm not so sure I didn't you know, I've got a lot on my plate and I you know what? I can just imagine you standing before Christ at the judgment seat. and he says to you, "I gave you gifts. What did you do with them? Well, you know, I had a lot on my plate and and I'm being a little bit facetious and yet I'm not I thought of that after I said it, twice today. I'm going to have to come up with some other things that they could use in the future. Uh, Don't worry. They'll come. Um, But I, I, I really mean this. I don't know what it's going to take to get some of you to use your spiritual gifts. What's it going to take? Is it going to? Nah, I'm not going to go there. I probably shouldn't say this. So I won't. (laughs) But honestly, folks, God gave you spiritual gifts to use, not to just sit and ruminate. You say, well, I'll have to make some sacrifices. Duh. Of course you will. Isn't that what love is about? It's exactly what the father did with the son. but my talents are so small. See, there's a difference between gifts, which are spiritual capabilities that God gives to a person the moment they trust Christ as Savior, which enables them to carry out spiritual ministries that will be an unusual blessing to the recipients of those ministries. And gifts, which God gives on the natural level to individuals to use to serve Him but they might be reflected in society at large. I I loved the piano offertory today. That was great. There were a couple mistakes, but it was great. Deal with it. it. (laughs) And I am dealing with it. I'll deal with you tomorrow. (laughs) But I look at that and I say, okay, we... We've got this wonderful talent that you use. And other people use their talents. In the unsaved world, are there good pianists that are unbelievers? Oh, yeah. Are there good musicians that are unbelievers? Are there good vocalists that are unbelievers? Yeah. But there are some really good vocalists and musicians who are believers who are in this auditorium and want to be using that talent. Well, I don't know. Everything's not going the way I want. Do you all understand? This doesn't sound like encouragement so much as it does like a a charge here. But do you understand what the Lord was saying? And listen, if you'll listen to this in the right context, you'll understand what I'm saying. You may not feel sufficient to do the work that God has called you to do, but He has made you this promise. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And when you take what is little, I will make it great. That's what the Israelites learned. Just give me what you got. Because when you give me a little the glory of what you are by yourself cannot compare to what I can make you. I hate to say this. I actually cut this message in half already. This was supposed to be the entirety of chapter 2. And we've got... Oh, listen, let's just stay till two. Okay, no, I won't do that to you. But here's here's what I do want you to understand. I haven't really gotten into the part yet of, of just in these first nine verses that are just so clearly God's hand saying to you, listen, I want you to enjoy my presence with you. I want you to be blessed by my presence with you. I want you to prosper. Not necessarily financially. This isn't a prosperity message. But I want you to prosper in the spiritual dimensions of life because of my presence with you. And he says to the Israelites, I am with you. And he says to you and me, if we know Christ... Now listen, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't don't personalize this. This is not for you. This is for God's people. The only way you become a child of God today is to trust Christ as your Savior. To accept the sacrifice that He made in dying for your sins and in being buried and rising again from the dead. And now we have a new life because He lives. If you've never trusted Him, trust Him today and then lay hold of this promise. I am with you. Let's stand. Father, your promises cannot be broken. The only thing that really minimizes the impact of your promises is our unwillingness to believe them. And so, Father, I pray that your Spirit would do a work in our hearts today so that every one of us would believe exactly what you've said. That you will be with us, never to leave us, nor forsake us. And when we take, Father, I'm asking you to help each one of us take what you have given us and lay it at your feet so that you can make of it what you want. Take our bodies, take our desires. Take our gifts, take our talents, and make them what you want. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.